If there was ever a woman who had all of the strikes against her, it's Mary Ritz. She grew up in the wrong country, in the wrong part of that country, speaking the wrong language and in the wrong culture. And she grew up in a family with a father that refused to let her quit, refused to take no for an answer. And as a result, he provided opportunities for Mary and her siblings that few people around the world will ever get. On this episode of Unbeatable, you get a chance to hear from Dr. You heard me right, Dr. Mary Ritz and how her life went from the most obscure poverty in Africa to now having a PhD and leading leaders at the highest levels and speaking to organizations and helping them focus on what matters most. Check out Dr. Mary Ritz on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Dr. Mary Ritz, thank you for taking some time and being a guest on this episode of Unbeatable. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. What a pleasure it is. Yeah. Um, for folks that are driving, they're going to immediately recognize your accent. So I want to make sure everybody understands a little bit about your background. We're going to go to your childhood in Zimbabwe and South Africa in just a few minutes. But I want to I want people to understand just how accomplished and how educated you are. So you have a Ph.D. Describe for the listeners the uh, Ph.D. that you did and what you're doing with that education today. OK, thank you very much. Um, my Ph.D. is in an area called customer centricity. And a lot of people say, wow, how is there such a thing in the first place? <laughs> right. <laughs> so really, it's an area that can be aligned with the business. It is a business uh, PhD, it's a marketing. But what I did, I focused on the customer element. And a lot of people say, was that customer service? Was that customer experience? Well, there is customer service and customer experience in it. As I was exploring my PhD, I met a gentleman, now he's late, uh, Doug Leather. I had said to him, I want to do customer service. I want to do customer experience. He says, yeah, but have you ever thought about customer centricity? And I had never heard of that. All right. So that, you know, that made me more curious. I went and I looked and then I realized that there really are two business models primarily. You're either a product-centric organization or your e or a customer-centric organization. So what is the difference? A product-centric organization is one that really differentiates itself around its products, around its innovations. It first focuses inwardly and then it goes outward versus a customer-centric organization that argues that you build your business engine around the customer, but not any customer, Jeff, we're talking about that specific customer who brings All a lot right. of value yeah. to the 20%. Are we also saying that we ignore the 80%? Not at all. Right. But what drives us is the 20%. So our innovation, our leadership, our processes, our systems are really influenced by the 20%, so to speak. And our desire in our businesses should be to increase our customer base 
to increase that 20% to right. 30% to 50%. Yeah. So that's the essence of what my PhD is, really. Well, um, I could easily nerd out with you right now because I have a PhD in uh, applied theology and I focused on leadership. And really, in the church, I tried to look at how churches, some of them are product centric, like you just described, and they offer a bunch of programs. Some of them are people centric, and they're really focused on the population they're trying to reach. Um, And honestly, um, I could sit here and talk about this all day long, which would totally bore the listeners. We're not going to do that right now. I was just sitting there thinking very few people are ever going to pursue education to the level that you did. And fewer still are going to get that focused on leading organizations and how they can become customer centric. So you described there was a gentleman in your life that kind of introduced this topic to you. But what made you fall in love with it? Well, let me take you back um, to a nine year old Zimbabwean little girl. Uh Let me tell you a story so that we can draw the context. Okay. So imagine a little girl growing up in a disadvantaged Zimbabwe, going to school in the morning, and then in the afternoon, she comes back with a little plastic bag full of her bags, dumps it on the ground, eats lunch quickly, Jeff, and then spends the whole afternoon being an imaginary teacher to an imaginary class. (laughs) Okay. All right. So that was me at the age of nine years. I had a passion to teach these imaginary students all the concepts that I had learned in school. Then my siblings then nicknamed me the teacher. Really? Fast forward around 15 years, around 16 years, when my parents started sending me to go to the grocery stores to buy bread, to buy milk and even to experience what I now know as customer service, customer experience on the bus. I remember coming back to my older sister who was now in university. And I say to her, is it not wrong for these service providers to be treating us so badly when we are the customers? You were talking about that at 12, 15 years old. You were talking about the way that business models work at 12 or 15 years old. Yes, okay. But again, Jeff, I really did not know what I was talking about, but I knew it was wrong. I Uh knew that there was a better way. So as you can see, that's what I do today. So it was natural for me when I started my own business to say, what am I in love with? I'm in love with customer. I really want to help organizations understand that they're in business for the customer's purposes. Uh The customer has got... Uh, needs once and how do we look after that right and then the training part the teacher in me came back and said how about training how about coaching yeah how about consulting so it really came together for me like that Jeff yeah and I was thinking as you were talking you know any company any big organization church company whatever can become Uh, whether they even intentionally do this or not, can focus too much on one at the expense of the other. I was thinking about the Ford Motor Company. They ultimately make products. They make vehicles. And if you were a leader at Ford and Dr. Ritz was um, consulting with you, if you're not careful, you spend all of your energy and all of your time focused on making the perfect product, right? I want to make the perfect vehicle. 
And of course, you're in the vehicle industry. So of course, you're supposed to do the make the best vehicle that you can. But if you're not careful, you're going to forget the people that you're making the vehicle for. And then pretty soon, nobody's you made the perfect vehicle, but nobody's buying it because you forgot about the customer. And I wanted to make this I just wanted to make this relevant for the people that are listening, because I think every organization has to uh, hang on to this and be careful about it. Um, We're going to go back to something you said just a second ago, because I'm convinced even the best organizations in the world, they will get away from the customer. They'll lose contact with the customer and eventually they'll go from the best to not existing anymore and not even see it coming until it's too late because they lost their connection to the customer. Yes. But before we get there, Mary, I want to take the listeners on a journey. You and I share a love for the southern part of Africa, um, and I I know a little bit about Zimbabwe. Um, we're just going to call it Zim during this episode, just to make it easy on me and you. Um, I know a little bit about what life was like for a five or a nine year old girl in Zim, but the listeners don't know anything like anything about it. So you just described to be in the teacher um, after after school. But I need people to understand what this society was like, what your country was like when you were six, seven, eight, nine years old. Okay. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, When I get asked that question to explain what Zimbabwe or Zim was like or what it is like, I always start off here. There are two sides to Africa. There are two sides to Zimbabwe. You've got the privileged side Uh and you've got the underprivileged, the ones that don't have. And then, of course, you've got the middle class, but the yeah. middle class is being eroded right now. I always like to point that out because people tend to think that Zimbabwe, Africa, is just all underprivileged. That's not true. Right. However, I grew up on the other side where there was no privilege. My dad came from nothing, Jeff. Okay literally from a mud hut, but he found his way out and therefore could afford better education for his kids. So growing up in Zimbabwe, Jeff, for me, because of the family that I grew up in with my dad, and you're coming from less privilege, right? and you're on your way to creating opportunities for you, education was of paramount. So at that time, my dad was coming from a generation where the girl child was marginalized. Mm -hmm. The girl child was groomed for marriage. And my dad could have easily fallen into that trap, so to speak. But no, he was different. So as a result, all my sisters, or both my sisters, we all have postgraduate education. Wow. Because that was fundamental for my dad. So we do not have much in terms of um, a variety meals. Uh-huh. In my family, there were no vacations. My dad did not drive the best cars. It was always the secondhand cars. Yeah. But again, he took us from one of some of the worst schools to some of the best schools wow. ever. Yeah. 
Let's talk about meals because I think people, you know, always ask me, what kind of food do you eat? What do you eat? Oh my goodness, a variety. So this was interesting. My mom is about traditional foods even today. All right. You know, pumpkin leaves. Our equivalent of rice is what we call sadza. And in mm -hmm. some parts of, in South Africa, it's called pap. Okay, that's where you make your uh, mealy meal from maize meal, an right. equivalent of um, corn meal, right. yellow corn here. So you would make that, that was like your your, your core. You would have that for lunch, you would have that for uh, for dinner. Breakfast time, if your family could afford it, it would be bread and tea. Mm -hmm. But basically, you could eat sweet potato for breakfast. You could eat anything as long as it filled your stomach, so yeah. to speak. Right. On Sundays, as your as as your family got better resources, yeah, you'd have your rice, you'd have your chicken. And Zimbabwe's, I must say, Jeff, are the best at making stew, chicken, uh, stew, right. beef, okay. anything stew. Please all come right. to Zimbabwe for that. Yeah. So that was, you know, like our treat, so to speak. I also want to talk about something that was paramount again in my family jeff unity and the collective i am one of seven kids we call our dad he's now late the united nations because he unified us so the southern part uh hemisphere is a very collective you know people would say you know you don't adopt you know people in zim in south africa don't really adopt we do our yeah. nephews, our nieces are be become my children right. naturally. Yeah. But I also want to caution the listeners because the world is becoming so, uh, we are influencing one another. You have some individualistic aspects cropping yeah. into, the, right. in, in, into that, into some of that. So it's no I, longer as collective as, as we grew up. Things yeah. have really changed. If you're watching this episode on YouTube, you can see that right behind Mary is a world map. And uh, she's talking about the southern part of Africa, which I have traveled to many times. I absolutely love it. I am uh, I'm in awe of the people. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about South Africa next. But I want people to understand just how incredible your family is because in the United States, it's hard for me to communicate to people who have been born and raised here what life is like in some other parts of the world. Like the many times that I went to Afghanistan, women didn't have the opportunity to go to work. They didn't have the opportunity to go to school. All they did was they got married, they had children, and that was it. You had no chance for advancement. And when I try to describe that for people in the United States, they look at me with this blank stare obviously they just can't fathom a world where even on the other side of the tracks so to speak you don't have the same opportunities now they may not be as available or as convenient but the opportunities are still there for some parts of the world and in zim those opportunities just don't exist when you're living in a mud hut so as you're talking i'm thinking your father the uniter or the united stations the united nations must have been a truly amazing man what helped him get out of the mud hut and get you get your family to a place where he could help you get education and get a chance to uh, make a better life for yourself jeff 
when we sit and we talk about our dad, I really think it was the hand of God. It, it, it was nothing that he could have done to think of getting out. It was by the grace of God. Yeah. Let me give you context. His mother could not speak English, was not educated at all. But she had a dream and she wanted to send him off to school, which was thousands of kilometers away. She sold a goat, literally, and sent him away to school. For the price of a goat. For the price of a goat. Uh-huh. And it was this was really to travel to the place, not yeah. to pay for the school fees or tuition. So what my dad did, even today, you have these tea plantations, manufacturers, that would ask students to work during the day from mm-hmm. 6 a.m. until about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. They would work in the morning and then go to school. That was labor. Okay. So the system allowed a person like my dad who wanted to be educated to go to school in the morning so that he could afford his yeah. tuition uh-huh. and then in the evening go to uh, in the afternoon go yeah. to school. Right. And Jeff, he only went up to seventh grade. All right. He did not have a master's degree or high school. He just uh-huh. went to seventh grade. But he did not stop there because he had an opportunity to go back to the village. That's what typically happened. But he did not go back. He went into South Africa, into the gold mines and sought employment there. And listen to this, Jeff. When he got there, he said to the quote unquote, madam, hey, I'm a qualified person. I've got seventh grade education. Uh Uh-huh. Please let me be your clerk because right. I can write. I can yeah. read. Yeah. Don't send me under the mind, uh-huh. but let me work. So that's the kind of mind my dad had. And as a result, he became the clerk. He he would help around the house. And from there, he went back to the manufacturing companies that produced tea and started from the beginning when he passed away and retired, Jeff, he was the estate manager of one of those manufacturing companies. Yeah. Leading thousands of employees, making a difference, and building people that were marginalized just like how he was. Yeah. yeah. Your grandmother had a dream. She wasn't going to let anything stop that dream. And if that means selling the prized goat, yeah. um, your source of milk and meat and cheese, um, yeah. then that's what it took to get her son, your father, an education. You and I share a love of South Africa. Um, I've been there many times. In fact, there are plenty of South Africans that are listening to this episode right now. So describe how your family goes from Zimbabwe to South Africa. And then I want to go back to the gold mines after that. But I just want to hear how you guys transitioned into South Africa. Sure, sure. So The transition was me. My parents remained in South Africa. As we grew older, I've got a sister in North Carolina, Greensboro, brother in North Carolina, one in Canada. We all just scattered. Mm -hmm. How I ended up in South Africa personally, I had come here to do my MBA at High Point University. And when it was time to go back home, Zimbabwe's economy was no longer functional. So I made a detour. 
and I stopped and I worked in South Africa. I had a brother up to today. I've got two brothers that live and work in South Africa. They've got businesses in South Africa. So that was the transition. My parents remained in Zimbabwe. They would visit South Africa. So that experience I can share from my personal experience, but not from a family experience or my parents' uh, uh-huh. experience. Yeah. yeah. You did uh, a degree in South Africa um, when you passed back through there. Tell everybody about that education. Wonderful. So when I was actually in Zimbabwe, after my high school, I could not qualify to go to University of Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. So I did a qualification by correspondence or during the night, it was a South African based institution. So my undergrad is in marketing from Institute of Marketing Management from South Africa. When I moved to South Africa, my PhD is with the university in South Africa, Da Vinci Mm -hmm. Institute of Innovation Mm -hmm. in South Africa. However, I worked in Cape Town. Uh, I worked in Johannesburg. Uh And sooner or later, the entrepreneurship bug got me, Jeff. And I decided, you know what? Let me jump ship and let me start my own. Yes. Yeah. Um, I am absolutely in um, uh, amazed at the people of South Africa, and I've met many uh, Zimbabweans from uh, that are living in South Africa now, and a lot of them came through the mining industry. Um, your grandmother's dream and her sacrifice for her son may have saved your your father's life, because I know and you know what life is like for those people in the mines, especially the foreigners that are in the mines. Um, And the fact that your father got a job as a clerk and didn't have to work in those gold mines probably saved his life. But can you describe the some of the horror stories that you've heard about life inside the gold and diamond mines of South Africa? Yes, yes. And, and, And that's the other part of Africa that still breaks my heart just the treatment of people um the hours uh and maybe a lack of protection clothing protection the living conditions uh the housing the separation of families uh husband and wife and 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 kids from Mm -hmm. the breadwinners the, the husband so to speak so those are some of the realities on the back that are on the ground. As you can imagine, the separation of families, you are touching on the core, the fabric of a home when yeah. you separate uh, families like that. So in the end, it's either the kids that have been left behind, whether they've been left in the townships, they're exposed to drugs, they're exposed to a life that you and I cannot even want to begin to imagine. So it becomes just like a spiral of a deterioration of the social context, so to speak. So what you get is really a system that feeds off each other. So though they're working in the mines, they never really get to be the best versions of themselves because there's just this vicious circle that just keeps them in this place and does not allow them to look for any other opportunity, so to speak. 
Yeah, and I want to make sure that the listener hears, it's not so much the business, the mine owners, it's not so much the government or regulations or lack of regulations. It's just kind of the industry itself can bring some really bad players. You get bad players that isolated from the rest of the world. I mean, literally kilometers underground and some uh, eventually that environment can get really dark. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the without having lights, I'm talking about, you know, just the dark parts of human nature can come mm-hmm. out down there. Sure. And I've heard, uh, you know, firsthand or from from many uh, folks in South Africa, just how dangerous, just how <laughs> brutal that living conditions can be in the mines. Yes. Yeah. And I'm Very sitting there brutal. thinking, if your grandmother hadn't sold the goat, your father probably ends up in the mines. And if he ends up in the mines, maybe you don't ever come along. Maybe your family never exists um, just because of how treacherous that lifestyle is. Yes. And Jeff, to your point, my dad is the one who came out. His siblings are still there, Jeff. Really? Yeah. Yes. They did not come out. um, And I don't want to blame or say there were le- uh-huh. lack of ambition, but they did not come out. And their lifestyle, their opportunities right now, and compared to what God has opened up right. for me and my yeah. siblings are day and night. And I say that in humility. So that's a typical example of somebody who remained in those circumstances and who hasn't managed to get out at all. Yeah. For those South Africans that are listening right now, you know exactly what we're describing. But for the rest of the world, especially people in the United States, they don't understand that there are still some people in those mines today, some gangs that will go into those mines and try try to work the mines, even though it's prohibited by law and you're not supposed to be in there. They'll get in the mines and try to make a little bit of money so that they can buy some guns or buy some, you know, control and um, you know, it's still a very, very dangerous, very bad place to be for a lot of people today. Nothing wrong with miners. Um, some amazing men and women and very hardworking people work the mines. But it's also can be a really, really bad, uh, an evil, for lack of a better word, place to work if you're not careful. I'm trying to get the audience to understand just how much the odds are against you. So you grow up, um, you know, kind of in a village in Zimbabwe. As a nine-year-old girl, you should not have the opportunities that uh, that the average nine-year-old girl uh, in your country does not have the opportunities. But because of your father, because of the sacrifice that his mother made, you get the opportunity to go and study um, at High Point University in North Carolina, go back and do some advanced degrees in South Africa. And those percentages of people that will ever get the opportunities you get is almost unheard of. Um, And if you're not careful, you'll take those and take advantage of those opportunities. And now I want people to hear a little bit about you personally. Listen, you've grown up in some hardships. You've gone through some some difficult circumstances. Mary, how do you deal with stress when it gets really bad? Just so that the listener gets to know you a little bit better. How do you handle stress? Well, Jeff, I, I don't deny it, Jeff, that things are happening. But what I do, I, 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 I dig deeper. 
and and I keep I'll keep going back to my dad, Jeff, and I'll yeah. keep going and I'll include my mom. Obviously, they had a big impact on <laughs> you, so you should keep that. going back yes, to them. I keep yes, keep going back to that. So when I hear their voices, the way that I was brought up, I was brought up to be a leader. I was brought up not to feel sorry for self. When we grew up, Zimbabwe was colonized. We were marginalized. So any excuse really not to do anything or to blame, but that was not the space. So the answers I was taught lie within you. Yeah. So you're going to have to dig deeper and just come out. It's not about the circumstances. It's about realizing that the circumstances are a process that are preparing you for the next step. So even if you decide to dwell in the stressful environment, the longer you stay in it, the longer you prolong your next step upwards. So it's a process that you have to come. What then happens when I'm in that particular space, I then look at flexibility. And I think, Jeff, please allow me to say this. Yes. When I compare the first world, I see economies and the social context that are quite comfortable, right? And just so that the listener hears you, when you say first world, you're talking North America, Europe, the highly developed countries. countries. Very comfortable. So you want your light to switch on when it's supposed to switch on. You want hot water when you turn it on. You want hot water when you Right. In Africa, in Zimbabwe, in growing up in those circumstances, nothing was guaranteed. So you could not allow the stressor to pull you down. What you needed to do was to be creative and say, what next? So that's what I do today. The circumstances come, the stressors come, but my next thing is, yeah, not this way for today, but what is next? How else can I adapt? How else can I become flexible? I see. So the question, what what next? It says, okay, I turn the knob and hot water doesn't come out. I wanted yeah. hot water to come out, but it's not. So what do I do next? And instead of pouting, like most of the first world does when the hot water doesn't come out, you find, you adapt and you find a different solution. So I put a black pot on the stove with water and I take a bath in the bucket. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I I didn't, Mary, I didn't even tell you I was about to ask you that question. But one of the reasons I asked that is because every listener goes through stress from time to time. Some of them are going through some pretty significant stress right now. And I think it's also good to remind them, you and most of people listening to this can turn a knob and hot water comes out just because they turn the knob, but not everybody around the world to this day, many people around the world don't live in those circumstances. And not having hot water when you turn the knob forces you to be flexible. It causes you to be creative. It makes exactly. you not worry about your circumstances, but find a way around them, Yes, which is a lesson the first world can learn. <laughs> you just mentioned that your parents brought you up to be a leader. And I wrote this phrase down. Very few people say would make that statement. So what do you mean, Mary, they brought you up to be a leader? They brought me up to be a leader 
who is not self-centered. A leader with the leadership qualities that include creativity, flexibility, humility, servant leader. In, in fact, Jeff, they would say, all of you are going to be managers. All of you are going to be leaders. If oh, they told you, you fail, that when you were growing us, up. When we were yeah. growing up. If you all fail to be that, then you have failed us. It was not a pressure, but it was an encouragement for where we were coming from. All right. We needed to hear that message to believe that we could be regardless of our background. We needed to believe that for ourselves. And then the leadership part of it is, remember my dad finally ended up as an estate yeah. manager, uh -huh. but he brought others behind him. Yeah. He took others. That was the whole essence. So the idea is for you to go make a difference in the world. Yes, you live in the United States, but who else are you bringing along with you? So it's never about self-serving. It's never, yes, we want to make money. Don't get me wrong. We want to live in the best houses. Don't get me wrong, Jeff. But who are we bringing along with us? Yeah. Continue. Okay. And then with that, there's a sense of belief. A sense that you can be the answer to some of the problems that are being that we're experiencing in the world. You can't just fold your arms and say, hey, it's up to them. So I'll right. give you a typical example. Zimbabwe really, economically and politically, we're suffering right now. We don't have a voice. If you voice too much, if you disagree with the political movement, mm -hmm. you're in trouble, you know, to be honest with you. But that does not mean that you cannot serve. But that does not mean that you cannot find a place where you can go impact those little girls, the little Marys, the nine-year-olds mm -hmm. that are still sitting under the tree are looking for a speaker, are looking for somebody who can come and stimulate them. Why don't I go when I go and visit my mom, go and give back to a society yeah. like that? Yeah. Wow. Well, um, in just a second, we're going to hear from one of our sponsors and Go Ministries, really, they're built to do what you're describing right now. They just want to raise people up and send them out to go make a difference around the world. In fact, that's why they call themselves Go Ministries. So I want us to hear from Go Ministries. And then when the, when uh, we're done with this little segment, um, I want to go back, Mary, to something that you said a moment ago about how your parents really set you up to lead well. But first, let's hear from Go Ministries. Hi, my name is Will Parton. I'm the president of Go Ministries. Go Ministries empowers local leaders to make disciples. Over the past 30 years, I've seen our ministry go from one family, one church, and one school to over 300 local leaders making disciples in 150 different communities through church planting, sports, and medical. And we're getting ready to expand into other countries. The way that we define a disciple-making culture is when mentorship, mission, and multiplication are present. When there's that one-on-one -on -one mentorship between two people that are sharing the gospel, we believe that discipleship is taking place. And then when a group of people are gathering together and they're on mission together, serving their community that surrounds them, that's another part of discipleship. And then lastly, you can't be a disciple or disciple-maker if multiplication isn't the final goal. 
So would you please join us in our disciple-making movement and our disciple-making culture by going to gomen.org. Okay, Mary, you were just describing the fact that your parents, um, they expected you to go and to serve, to go and to make a difference. And I, I, I can't help but think there's a difference between placing pressure on your child to perform and putting a vision in front of them and giving them, a, you know, a dream to follow fact, as you were talking, I was thinking there are millions of fathers out there that wanted to be a football star, but it never happened for them. And now they're putting this crazy amount of pressure on their sons to go be a football star. There are many mothers out there that wanted to go win beauty contests and it never happened for them. So they're pouring all of their energy and putting all of this pressure on their child to go win beauty contest. And that may not be what they want. They may not, they may hate it, but mom and dad are pressuring them. And you said your parents didn't pressure you. They just kind of gave you a vision and a dream and allowed you to go pursue it. And, and I, I, I really want to give you the chance now to talk to a mom or dad and just explain to them, well, how do I do what your parents did for you? when I want the best for my children, but I also don't want to put so much pressure on them that they, you know, they hate their childhood and, um, are end up doing something that they're mis that's going to make them miserable. So how did mom and dad do this for you? And more importantly, would you tell the parents that are listening how they can do this for their children? Sure. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Great question. My parents understood that we were uniquely made seven of us. What they needed us to do was to truly live life in the essence that God created us to be. Okay. So because they could see that I loved teaching, I spoke to the air, <laughs> then right. they realized that this was yeah. a teacher. But the idea was, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be the best teacher ever. Okay. One of us is a CPA. You're going to be that, but you're going to do the right thing. You're going to leave it all on the table. You are going to pursue. So there's a realization that each child comes with their own ideas, with their own talents. Right. It's for the parents to cultivate that and for you to cheer them on to realize their full potential in the lane that has been designated for them by their creator yeah. or that they desire to be. And then you cheer them on. Your whole idea is to challenge them if they have reached their best. Is this the best that you can be? Right. Could you try something else? So give them the opportunities to drive different things. I also mentor a group of under 40s right now and they always come to me, Mary, our parents want us to live their dreams. We can't still, do at that. 40, at, you at know, 40, at 30 years old, your par their parents are still trying to get them to live to them mom to and dad's dream. Dreams, yes. Wow. I would say, please do not do that. Because once you birth a Mary like me, yeah. and you allow her to be a teacher, the next level 
is what we are doing, Jeff. Right. We are impacting people authentically. We're not driven by money. We're not driven by immorality yeah. or something like that. We are genuinely living our lives because we are living according to the core. And I don't feel like my mom gave me this. So it's a realization that a child has got talents, a child has got needs. Will you allow them to be that? And secondly, allow them the voice. Allow them the voice. You can't say, I'm the mother, I saved so. I'm the father, I saved so. You gotta have to be their coach. Ask them the right questions. If you decide to do that degree, what does that mean for you? If you're going through that path, what are the implications? Yeah. You will find that if you start to speak them in that language, you're giving them the responsibility up front. They can process, they can start to think about their decisions before they make them. you got to yeah. trust them. Yeah. Yeah. Every parent that has uh, a more than one child knows that children are very different. So your parents are wise enough to recognize Mary has the personality to be a teacher where one of your siblings has the personality to be a CPA and to try to force everybody in the family to be CPAs or everybody in the family to be teachers, that would be disastrous. And some of you would thrive. Others of you would just be miserable. Sure. Sure. Um, Let me add something on that. Then we played basketball, my sister and I, and she played basketball like a crazy girl. I was about to ask got... who's better, you or your sister? <laughs> oh, she oh, she played national. She played All national. Right. Okay. And then she got a basketball scholarship to come yeah, to the United so, States. There you go. But, but you see that, Jeff, my parents did not say, Oh, Mary is going that route. Uh-huh. Um Bengai, my other brother, is going through that route. You don't play basketball. She played basketball, she got a basketball scholarship, and she got an accounting degree as she was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, not only did they give you the ability to, you know, be who you're uniquely created to be, but they also, instead of just putting their hands on their hips and telling you, I'm the parent, you're the child, it's going to be this way, shut up and go do what I told you. <laughs> they asked you the right questions and allowed you yeah. to learn on your own. Sure. And for some of the parents out there that have these incredibly talented children that seem like they're just kind of wasting their future right now. You can sit there and complain and criticize them until you're blue in the face. It might not get much accomplished. Yeah. Or maybe you can just ask them, is this what you want for the rest of your life? Or is that how you want the future to go for you? Or do you want something better for yourself? Yes. And sometimes, you know, let them make the mistake. As long as the mistake is not a huge mistake, yeah. I'm not asking us to be careless. But sometimes it's nice for them to make a decision, which you know as right. a parent is not really the best decision. But I, 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 And we, we're talking about measurements here, Jeff. We're not talking yeah. about being reckless. Allow them and then so that they can learn from that mistake. They'll come back and tell you, oops, right. mom, <laughs> you were right after yeah. all. Right. Yeah. yeah. I like the idea of parents being kind of a safety net underneath their children. Allow them to fly. Maybe they make a mistake or two, but you're the safety net underneath them yes. to catch them. Yes. But if they don't ever get the chance to make a mistake, they never get a chance to fly. So allow them to make a mistake or two. Yeah. Mary, when we started this broadcast, we went straight to your education. And what I wanted listeners to hear at that point was you're a lady who really beat the odds. And I mean, incredible odds stacked against you. 
But I also want people to hear what life was like for you when you're in the classroom and you speak a different dialect or you have a different language and you obviously look different and sound different. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what some of those odds were like that you had to face as well? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a difficult. Now, when you talk about resilience, that was the time we just did not know that, that I was being resilient or we're being resilient. Mm -hmm. Again, Jeff, we grew up in the part of Zimbabwe that had this accent called Ndawo, and people laughed at that accent. And it was a less privileged area anyway. So just to, so the listener hears it, even in your own country, people yes. laughed at you because of your exactly. accent, because that meant you're from the less privileged part exactly. of Zimbabwe. Exactly, exactly. So we come from one of the poorest, so there's poverty, right? Then there's poverty. Right. All right. So we came from that area where everybody kind of like said, no, don't marry those people. No, don't, don't do right. that with those people. Yeah. Then your dad and your mom work so hard that they send you to some of the best schools. So you have to move away from that area. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to the affluent areas. So you get into class now with students who only speak English or even if they look like you but their first language is English because they grew up among you know Caucasian Europeans so yeah. they speak English like the British speak English right yeah and remember now Jeff because you came from that the only sports that you knew was athletics track uh -huh. and you only knew football soccer yeah. and netball you know really just humble beginning sports you did not know how to hold a tennis racket you uh -huh. did not know how to swim basketball all that you don't know so can you imagine now your little mary 13 years old and you're in this high school and you can't speak english as others can and you're trying to learn that yeah you, you can only speak your native language. And when you speak it, you speak it in a different dialect that they can understand and they laugh at you. And then when it comes to sports, those sports that you were used to from first grade to seventh grade, they don't offer them because mm -hmm. these are privileged schools. Now you've got to learn how to play tennis when others have been playing tennis for the last seven years. Yeah. And now here you are. Now I have to play basketball. But guess what, Jeff? We learned. Yeah. There was no excuse. We integrated. I became the basketball captain for four years. Really? My sister got a basketball scholarship. Wow. I made the tennis team. I hated swimming, so I, I ran away <laughs> from that. Okay. I played basketball. So can you imagine being marginalized but not dwelling on that, Jeff? not dwelling on it, but saying, what is it that I need to do so that I can compete, so that I can be? So so the lesson here, Jeff, that I always say when I speak to the younger generation, when I inspire them is, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. Compete and don't be embarrassed to be vulnerable, to say, hey, my English is not as good as others. I may not know how to hold a tennis racket, but learn. Be vulnerable and learn. And before you know it, you're the basketball captain. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, obviously, when you were in school, you stood out as somebody who's not from here. Um, in my part of the United States, we would say, you ain't from around here, are you? And everybody yeah. recognizes by the way that you talk yeah. or, you know, by the way that you dress that you're not from around here. And plenty of 13-year-old little girls, that would have been so overwhelming that they would have got on the phone and called mommy and daddy and said, I can't do it. It's too hard. I want to come home. Yeah. And you didn't. Um, and I want listeners to hear just how unbeatable you are, Mary. So mm -hmm. when it was really hard, when you were lonely, when you were away from your family and you wanted to come home, why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? I couldn't. <laughs> my parents wouldn't have said. My dad would have just <laughs> said, no, you're going back. You can do it. You don't quit, Jeff. You, you start to believe that I belong here, too. You start to believe that for me, I'm a Christian, Jeff. So I say, when he died for me, Jesus Christ, he also died for me yeah. because he, saw, he thought I was worthy. I was worthy of it all. So I have to find myself worthy to belong. It's just like in the United States. Yeah, there's people all over the world that need to hear what you're saying right now, yeah. Mary, because many of them are in a group and they feel like I don't belong yeah. and they're going to struggle feeling or believing that they belong. And you're telling yes. me that you got to the point where you had to convince yourself, I do belong here. I do. And there's lots of adults, 30, 50 year old adults that yes. need to hear this right now. So how did you, yes. how did you get there? Yes. Believing Christianity. Uh, I was fortunate parents instilled in me fearfully and wonderfully made you're capable. And remember Jeff, um, when you saw my notes, I wasn't the brightest of them. I was not an yeah, A student. That's, I was going to say, not only did you have all of these <laughs> obstacles against you, but you didn't have the best grades when you were no. going to school. And now look at you. You got a PhD mm -hmm. and you're a you're a very edu highly educated woman. It's, it's not about that. It's about believing in yourself. What is it that you've been sent here to do? You have been sent here on a mission. You've got a vision. You've got to dig deeper and find that. Because if you don't show up, it means that you're being negligent to what your core is. You're letting other people do your job for you. So you need to be prepared to do that job. You need to stand up and say, yes. Right now, I'm not embarrassed to encourage that child with two Bs and three Cs. I'm like, I've been there. I've done it. I've had to rewrite some of my, exam my exams. I have to, to retake them. But look at what I have done. Yeah. You inspire other people. Mary, my first uh, semester in my master's degree, one of my professors said, I think you need to drop this course because you're going to fail. And that was the moment that I realized I'm going to have to dig real deep if I'm going to make it through this program. Yes. I could have thrown in the towel, but I didn't. Yes. And like you, yes. you didn't throw in the towel. Yeah. Now let's go back to the beginning of the episode. I want to nerd out for a few minutes sure. because you now coach and you teach teams and leaders how to focus on people again, not at the expense of making the best product possible, but getting connected to the consumer again. And I want to kind of wrap this episode up by learning from you. How do you coach that how do you teach that to organizations that are so far away that they forget about the consumer or they just frankly don't care about the consumer anymore as long as they're making money? The examples are so many. 
look at Kodak, look at all these big brands that were at one point. Because the whole argument is that a lot of organizations are doing so well under the product-centric organization. Yeah, today they're yeah, doing really today well. they're doing really sure, well. Sure, you're yeah. knocking it out of the park today, yeah, yep. But it's not guaranteed tomorrow. Right. Because if it was guaranteed, BlackBerry will still be very, very competitive today. Yeah, I hope everybody heard that. You probably just yes. need to say that again. If yes. a product was that perfect, BlackBerry yeah. would still be in business today. Exactly. Nobody exactly. on the planet is still yes. carrying a BlackBerry. BlackBerry. And 15, yeah. 20 years ago, everybody had one. But exactly. BlackBerry got away from the customers. And when they did, they, they, they went out of business. Sure. So how do you coach this to them? How do you teach them to get okay. back to the customers? To the customers. So that's it. You know, so you can't just differentiate on innovation. If you do innovate, you're innovating with the customer and for the customer. So it's not, it's really building that business case around the product centricity to say, yes, product centricity is good, but it's not sustainable. So you show them that profitability because everybody's about maximizing profits. Yeah. But you also say it's not about maximizing profits for immediately. It's for the long term. That's what you want to do. So it's a, it's, it's a mindset. So the first thing that we that I'll help them is who are your most valuable customers? Who are you, they? You use the language most valuable, valuable customers? customers. Okay. Yes. All right. And I mean that because the, the reason I say that, Jeff, is because they're just not valuable because they bring in monetary value. But we're talking about customers that are your advocators. We're talking about customers that pay you on time. We're talking about customers that would defend your brand on social media. All right. We're talking about um Customers that can co-create and innovate with you, they will come for the focus group and they will help you brainstorm. That's what we're talking about, about value. Who are they? That they are so obsessed about your brand that they will be there for you, not just monetarily only. Right. So do you know those people? Are you capturing who they are? Are you capturing their voice? And what are you doing with that information? Yeah. And when you say, who are they? You're not just asking about simple demographics or where oh. they live. You're asking what makes them tick, right? Exactly. Exactly. What is their desired outcome that they want to solve for that goes beyond your products? In other words, it's not because I want a Blackberry or an iPhone is because I want time is because I want what it brings to me, yeah. the life that it brings, the convenience, the efficiency that products bring. People are not crazy about your products is the end result of that. So if we understand that as organizations, that it's not about the products, it's about the end result. What we do is that how then do we repeat that? Which means that Jeff, if they come to me and, and my product, excuse me, and my product cannot solve for them, I can refer them to Jeff yeah. because Jeff has got a better product that can solve for them. That's customer centricity. Right. It is it's so obsessed about answering that question. Am I meeting them at the point of need? Am I solving for their desired outcome, not my products? Yeah. So when you start to work with your executive suite, 
for them to change a mindset is really a paradigm shift in their head to start thinking along those lines versus a product centric, which is a tried and tested business model. So you're asking them to change their mindset. And I was just thinking that I understand what you're describing right now for the most talented leaders up there of, of the best organizations. You've just dedicated almost your entire life to perfecting this product. And now Mary comes in and says, yeah, your product is great. But if you don't know the people, you're not going to be in business 20 years from now. And it's really going to be hard for them to shift their attention from the product because the product has consumed their life to the people that use the product. And there's a lot of people that are listening right now that are totally bored by this conversation. So let me try to put it into context. When I teach leadership to some of my students at the master's or advanced levels, I tell them, I show this video and I tell them when people go to the hardware store to find a drill, they actually don't want a drill. What they want is a hole in the wall. And a drill is what puts a hole in the wall. They go to the hardware store and this is the hard this is the part that some businesses will never figure out they don't go to the hardware store to buy a drill they go to the hardware store to buy a hole in the wall mm-hmm. and if you can provide the customer with a hole in the wall or a better yeah. hole in the wall they're yeah. going to buy what you have exactly what's hard for the drill companies to remember is they don't actually want my drill they want a hole in the wall and my yeah. drill is what puts the hole in the wall in front of yeah. them or for them I share this little short video with my students because it's my way of trying to help them be customer or people focused Mm -hmm. instead of product focused and tell them if you're not careful, you'll end up building the best organization on the planet that Mm -hmm. creates drills, but nobody wants a drill. Everybody just wants a hole in the wall and the drill happens to put the hole in the wall for them. And one day something may come along that makes a better hole cheaper and faster and now you're out of business and there are as you just said countless thousands or millions of businesses that are no longer in existence today because Mm -hmm. they didn't understand the consumer wants a hole in the wall not a drill the drill just puts the hole in the wall for them yes well put Jeff. very well put. well i didn't come up with this some somebody (laughs) with a much bigger brain than i did came up with it in fact they made the video and i show it in my classroom just to remind people this is what we mean when we say people focused instead of product focused Mm -hmm. very true and for the startup for the guy or the gal that has this entrepreneurial entrepreneurial dream and they want to create this startup and they want to go from zero to a billion dollars in a few years. And by the way, it's possible that that happens to you. If you're not careful, you can also go from a billion to zero dollars in a few mm-hmm. years. Yes. If you ever fall in love with the product so much that you forget the people that the product mm-hmm. is for. So the challenge for all of us is to keep close to the people that matter the most. In fact, you called them your most valuable customers. And um, I want to use this as a way of wrapping up this episode. Everybody has some people in their life that believe in them. Most of us have had a person or two like your grandmother who made great sacrifices for us so that we would have a better future. I don't know a parent on the planet that doesn't want a better future for their children than what they had And the question becomes, what are you going to do with the opportunities that you've been given? 
maybe you can become another Dr. Mary Ritz because of the incredible opportunities you've been given if you're relentless and unbeatable and refuse to allow circumstances to hold you back. Or you can sit around and pout when you turn the knob and hot water doesn't come out. So Mary, thank you for being part of this episode of Unbeatable this week. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. What a great conversation. Yeah, I agree. Hey, there you heard it. If you live in the part of the world like I do, where you flip a switch and the lights come on, you turn a knob and hot water comes out. If you live in that part of the world, please don't ever take your opportunities for granted. But more importantly, the lesson that you can learn from Mary is when you turn the knob and the hot water doesn't come out, you have two options now. You can sit around and pout about it and write a note on social media and complain to the world, or you can put a pot on the stove and boil some water and take a bath from a bucket and refuse to be beaten by your circumstances. Mary inspires me by all that she's overcome, and I hope she's inspired you too. Hey, thank you for joining me for this episode of Unbeatable. We created this podcast just to speak some inspiring words into your life when you're having a rough week. And our fan of the week for this week is Ranger Dan. Dan Becker, I just want to say thank you for being such an awesome follower of this podcast. Thanks for letting other people know about it. You're amazing. And if this has been one of those weeks for you, I want you to know that I've got a totally free booklet. There's no strings attached here. It's a PDF download and it is full from the front to the back of little motivational thoughts, quotes, ideas to just help you get through a hard week. That book is completely free and all you got to do to get it is go to unbeatablearmy.com. If you really want to get deeply connected with this podcast, there's two ways you can do that. You can, of course, subscribe on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform. But maybe the better way to do that is to follow us on social media. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast or join the Unbeatable Army. This group of listeners that are getting connected with the content, connected with one another, we send out weekly information uh, on top of these episodes. And if you want to be part of that community online, just go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me. And instead of cursing the darkness, why don't you do what Dr. Mary Ritz does and light a candle this week? See you next time. Mm -hmm.